If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, over the last 50 years, the left has poured time, money, and creativity into developing the institutions to support a storytelling culture. Looking only at documentaries and small independent features, by some estimates, The left spends tens of billions of dollars annually. On the other side, the right spends maybe tens of millions of dollars on films and television. So over 50 years, this gap has grown to hundreds of billions of dollars, which has underwritten a progressive ecosystem of supportive and reinforcing institutions, in addition to many powerful films. The left starts nurturing young filmmakers right from the beginning of their career, and then at every step along the way. My guests today are putting a stake in the ground to help mentor right-of-center filmmakers through a new incubator program they're working. I'm really pleased to welcome my guests, Michael Pack, producer of over 15 award-winning documentaries and president and CEO of Palladium Pictures, and his son, Thomas Pack, director of Palladium Pictures' incubator program which is training the next generation of documentary filmmakers. Michael and Thomas, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you for having us on the show, Newt. Michael, you've been doing this a long time. We've known each other, gosh, I guess 30 years now. Can you talk about why you're launching palladiumpictures.com slash incubator? Well, I think it's contained a lot in your introduction. As you say, and I have written about this in a couple of places, including in Real Clear, and now I've written it in an op-ed form on the Washington Examiner. I think we on the right have to take into account what you said, that the left has built up over a 50-year period a vast ecosystem to support storytelling media. And that has allowed them to struck the debate on every issue. 
by the time things come to Congress, the public has already made up its mind and it's made up its minds largely through watching films and television. So this is perhaps a part of the well-known culture war, but I like to say it's not really a culture war because only one side is fighting. Imagine if you had a real war where one side put an army in the field and the other side simply wrote articles complaining about that <laughs> army. Which army would win? And that's where we are. The left is making films and television, some of it at a very, very high quality. And we are just complaining about the effects of that. We have to actually stop and get serious. We are launching this incubator, and I've launched this new company, Palladium Pictures, to make a difference. But I actually think it has to be part of a way bigger effort. As you said, Newt, the left has poured tens of billions of dollars a year into this, at least since the 60s. We have to be at least at one-tenth where they are. We could win 10 to 1. We have truth on our side, but we have to up our game. We're doing what we can. I think you put this well. We're putting a stake in the ground. We hope to start this process, but we really need to be joined by lots of other people. Thomas, since you're going to be in charge of this particular project, can you describe your vision of an incubator system as it relates to this whole concept of strengthening the rights ability to compete in the cultural zone? Sure. Well, I'll say quickly what the sort of incubator literally is before I tell you how it makes us compete. I mean, it's a very simple concept. We're going to provide for up-and-coming producer-directors, documentary producer-directors, we're going to provide full funding for a short documentary idea. So that's they'll get up to $30,000 to produce their film. We're going to provide distribution for them, which, and I think these are two really useful things for young people to getting started, funding and distribution. But also, maybe even more crucially, we'll executive produce so they'll get mentorship from Michael Pack here, and they'll get to be part of a network. And we're going to do this every year, and there'll be more and more people, and they'll be part, as we start to build out this infrastructure, they'll be part of like the first brick of that. Describe for a second, you've now created Palladium Pictures as an independent film company, and you launched it this year. How does that change what you've done in the past? Well, I think the reason I launched it, a reason I launched it is that some of the people who've admired our work and supported it in the past really thought I had to produce more films. You are right. I've done 15 films that have all been nationally broadcast on PBS and award-winning, but it's not enough. So I've gotten some multi-year funding to launch this new company to produce more films, including short documentaries and including this incubator to up our game because People are convinced by the argument that we are not really doing enough in the whole storytelling area. So it's similar to what we did with our previous company, Manifold Productions, but it has to be more of it. And it has to include all along the way training a new generation of right of center filmmakers. I have to say, I've had a great career and my wife and I are partners in both companies and we've had great success, but we have largely worked with people who are on the left our cinematographers, our cameramen, our editors, our composers. And they've gone on to do other things. And in some of them, we've helped train. But we haven't trained people on our side. And I think there's really a dearth of training and a dearth of knowledge. So I think what you have over this, especially in the last five or 10 years, is a renaissance of documentary filmmaking. It's all on the left. And all these new streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, have a huge nonfiction portfolio and if you throw in sort of historical, political, independent features, it's even more. And there's very little on our side. What we do pretty well on our side is preach to the choir, make documentaries 
including ones by mutual friends of Arsenault, that do a very good job of kind of cheering people on with views they already have, but they don't tell stories that are convinced people. We want to get our storytelling ability somewhere up there where the left's is. My last documentary that I did was Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words, and it was nationally broadcast on PBS in 2020 and in 110 movie theaters and is now streaming on Amazon and Fox Nation and Daily Wire and Salem and many other places. But the reason it gets on PBS is it's not just advocacy for Clarence Thomas. It purports, and it is, Clarence Thomas looking right in the camera, telling his story in his own words, from his growing up in the segregated South to his radical youth to coming around becoming a conservative, working for Reagan, and all the controversies that ensued, including his controversial confirmation process. But you hear him tell his story in his own words. So people on the left who don't like him have said to us, I didn't like him before I watched your documentary. I didn't like him after, but I understand him now. So you can get something from it if you're not a Clarence Thomas fan. It lets him tell his story, and his story is a dramatic story. You can see how his ideas come out of his life. We need to be way better at that on our side. I have many, many friends on the left who make documentaries and feature films, and I think they do a great job. But it's not that hard, and we can learn to do it. I was just noticing that you actually founded Manifold Productions 46 years ago. I was very young, but I did right out of college. I founded it. That must have taken a lot of courage. I mean, did you just decide you're going to found a production company? I think stupidity would be a better term than courage. I had gone through sort of a, a left like Clarence Thomas, a period of being sort of on the left growing up. And I have been just come to reject those things. And the people at NYU Film School and that I knew coming out of film school all wanted to make what I considered anti-American, anti-capitalist films. They were, it was the era of the nuclear freeze. You know, they thought the Soviet Union in America, you know, equally good. They were radical environmentalists. And my first partner and I thought, we will counter these films in a few years. We'll defeat these people. And then I'll go on to Hollywood and make, you know, entertainment films. But it was a harder process than I thought. And as you say, more than 40 years later, I'm still at it. So I'm not sure I would have done it if I had understood its difficulty. What was your first film? My first major PBS film, I had done a short half-hour drama right out of film school called Hard Bargain that won awards. It was on some PBS stations. It was on Showtime, played at the Museum of Modern Art. And that sort of launched my career. But my first documentary, which came out in 1987, was called Hollywood's Favorite Heavy. And it was how business and businessmen are portrayed on nighttime TV. And this was the era of Dallas and Dynasty, and businessmen were always the villains. So we went to Hollywood to ask the people who made these shows what their ideas of business were and why they made the villains. And it was a very revealing show. I mean, their knowledge of business was based almost exclusively on the entertainment business. So their idea of what business is like was limited to that. And they had a very interesting and entertaining views of how they came up with these ideas. And it featured lots of people. I mean, it had Norman Lear in it. It had the producers of Miami Vice and of Dallas and Dynasty. And it was an interesting show. And it showed, I think, the superficiality of Hollywood's efforts to understand America and where it came from. 
these people were all smart, charming people and really bright and really creative, but they could not grasp the essence of America and the movie tried to dramatize that. Still a good film in my opinion. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. You did take a break from making movies when you became, from June of 20 to January of 21, you were the first Senate-confirmed CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which sort of supervises the government's five international broadcasting networks. What was that like? Wow. Well, that was an amazing experience. I have taken a few breaks from filmmaking. My wife likes to say, if you're working for yourself as a filmmaker, it's good to get a job every 10 years or so. And I have done that. I worked at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for a few years. I ran the Claremont Institute for a few years. But in the George H.W. Bush administration, I ran the TV, what is now the TV part of the Voice of America. So I had international broadcasting experience. So when the Trump administration began, they approached me because there were just not that many conservatives that had any international broadcasting experience anyway. And it seemed like a great opportunity. I think I underestimated, once again, its difficulty. And the Trump administration approached me in March of 2017, just after they were inaugurated. And it took three years and three months for me to be confirmed. Democrats strongly opposed me. 
particularly Senator Menendez and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, it took the personal intervention of the president of the United States to get me confirmed, which it should not do. And by the time I got in there, the opposition was very strong to Donald Trump. There was a feeling on the part, the U.S. Agency for Global Media had about 4,000 people in it. And I was able to bring in, you know, maybe 10 politicals. And the 4,000 people there, I like to say the bottom half, the bottom 2,000 that are editors, cameramen, sound recordists, they probably were less political and reflected somewhat closer to America. But the top of that, the top 50%, you know, those middle managers and above were extremely progressive and had a lots of free time in which to pursue their political goals. And they were all staunchly opposed to Trump and had no intention of following the guidelines of the president or his chosen appointee, meaning me. So the opposition was intense from the very beginning. My goal And this is the only thing President Trump ever said to me that I should do. And the only advice anyone at the White House ever gave was to bring the voice of America, especially back to its glory days, meaning in the Cold War, when it stood up for freedom and democracy against Soviet communism. And that is all I wanted to do. That is what the agency is founded on. And it's supposed to reflect American values, not be partisan and promote ideas like democracy and freedom. And it's supposed to reflect the diversity of views in America. But the agency had not done that for many years. It was really captured by the progressive left, and they had no intention of giving it up. I mean, one kind of way of looking at this, I think, is that the people who worked there, their model was CNN or MSNBC, I mean, or the New York Times. That was the peak. And while those journalistic entities are private and have every right to be whatever they want to be. This was a government agency and they needed to reflect the views of the American people. And they were under the executive branch and President Trump was the president and they simply could not take that. So it was fighting from the beginning to the end, one of the most difficult eight months of my life. In that context, did they promptly revert back as soon as you left and as soon as Biden came in? They promptly reverted back. President Biden I had a three-year term, but it was really not a hard three-year term. And President Biden's office called and asked me to resign within 20 minutes of the inauguration. Politico claimed that that was his first foreign policy move, which I guess is a high honor. And right away, I mean, we had a major security lapse in our agency where 25% of people had been inadequately cleared, including a fair number that were top secret and above. And all the people involved in that, that we were trying to get to the bottom of, they're all back. Everybody that we got rid of for cause, were all hired back. So yes, the reversion was very complete. The person who was VOA director under Obama is now head of the agency, Amanda Bennett, who's married to Don Graham, who used to own the Washington Post, you know, son of Catherine Graham. And indeed, that kind of well-connectedness is part of the reason why they I got a huge amount of coverage in my time there. For instance, in the Washington Post, I was there eight months and there were 40 articles about me, including four op-eds and four editorials. Now, you may be used to that kind of coverage, Newt, because you actually are an important person. I was not, and I did not expect it. And they treated it seriously because the media thinks the media is important. Well, and I think also that the power of language is real. Indeed. And that's why we need to recapture. You know, we need to have a voice of America, which is actually pro-American, which may be a bit much. To switch gears, 
Thomas, did you kind of feel growing up surrounded by all this that it was inevitable that you would go into some kind of media activity? No, I did not actually ever feel that way. I think, I mean, growing up surrounded by this has been, it really is an amazing experience. The great thing about filmmaking is you get to kind of dive into a new project. And as kids, I mean, we just like, were thrown into it. It was the conversation around the dinner table was Admiral Rickover for you know, a year and a half. And then once we were experts on that, we got to move on to the next interesting project. Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. And you know, before he was a rap artist, we say. I wasn't sort of sure I was going to do it. I've been working in different educational organizations. I worked at Intercollegiate Studies Institute for a while. And so I came back to the family business to launch what is, you know, an educational initiative more than anything else. I think with all this talk about how much money is being spent on this issue, the solution isn't to just spend more money. You know, we can't solve this problem by like, you know, buying a streaming service and just assuming that we have content to put out because we don't. We need to train out the talent. We've been behind on spending for so long that now we're also way behind on people that know how to make great films that understand you know, the art and story elements required. I think the depths of the left's infrastructure is very important to understand. We only kind of glanced at it at the beginning. Yeah. But I think one way to look at it is there are 4,000 colleges and universities in America. Everyone has a film school. Those film schools, usually in their brochures, are very out front about training people to be advocates for social justice. And they have activist filmmakers that they create. So every year, those 4,000 universities pump out, you know, tens of thousands of wannabe filmmakers. And the left, the progressive left, is able to siphon off the talented top five or 10%. And we have no such sifting process. We get the rebels. But we have to work with what we have. And I think there are people out there that want to make films that are now tired of woke progressivism as it has drifted further and further to the left. So we appeal to your listeners to actually sign up for the incubator and apply. It's very easy to do. It's on our website, palladiumpictures.com. There's a huge sign up incubator button. The process is not that hard, but you need to have some experience in making a film of some sort and have a good idea. But we really encourage your listeners or the children or grandchildren or friends of your listeners to apply. When you look at all this, you've been in the middle of it, you've thought about it. Why do you think people on the left are so anti-American? That is a very deep question and a very hard one to answer. I mean, I think that part of it is what they're getting at universities. I mean, I thought they were pretty anti-American when I began, but it is so much worse today. I mean, as you see these colleges erupt with anti-Semitism, it is flat out shocking, even to me. I mean, we are Jewish and we are maybe particularly sensitive. I hope not. I mean, I hope everyone's sensitive, but it's shocking. I think that they are just feel free to express that. But I do think it has to do with this long march through the institutions. You know the story well, I think. In the 60s, the left, having failed to foment violent Marxist revolution, took stock of what to do next. And they concluded that they would do a long march through the institutions, a, a line of Rudi Deutschke, famous German Marxist, but really deriving from cultural Marxism of Gramsci and picked up by the new left here. And they just decided that they would take over the cultural institutions, beginning at the universities where a lot of them were, they were student radicals, but very rapidly moving to Hollywood. 
and media in general, because as you said a moment ago, they understood the power of the word and of the culture. And I think they've succeeded in making the country less pro-American than it used to be. I think there's still a vast pool of people who love this country, but they are increasingly not the elites, not the ones that are best educated, that are coming out of Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. We see that among the people who are you know, doing the work in America, plumbers and carpenters, and they remain pro-American and they've avoided some of this woke ideology. I think that is a large part of it. And it's both being miseducated and then the failure to educate them properly. And I do believe, I mean, this is the thing about the incubator and the media. We have not done our part. We can't just pick on the left. They've been advocating their views. They're allowed to do that. This is America. They're making great films that push for their ideas. That's what you're supposed to do in a battle of ideas. We need to up our game. Culture is much more of a free market than government. I had a lot of struggles when I was in the Trump administration. It's not nearly a free market. You can't hire and fire people. We can make films. We have great stories to tell. We need to put in, as you said, I think up front, the same kind of talent, energy, and money that the left does. We hope at Palladium Pictures that we're doing our part. Actually, I know that you and Callista do work in this area too, but there needs to be way more of us. And I'm optimistic that we can win this back. I think there's still a deep well of patriotism and a desire to understand this country and its principles. And we need to tap into that and use it and educate it. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
Do you think that the left is better at storytelling than we are, or just that there's so many of them doing it that the mathematical odds of having some of them be really good is just a practical reality? I believe that it is the latter. There are some people who've told me over the years that people on the left are naturally better at the arts period and that we are just better at economics or law or whatever. But I think there is no evidence for that. If you look over the history of mankind, there have been very many, what you have to say, right of center, great artists. You know, I mean, you can't say that Shakespeare, who's extolling Elizabethan England, is a rebel, you know, or Virgil making the greatest epic poem ever in, in support of the emperor. But more recently, I say, look back at Hollywood in its golden age. Hollywood used to make very pro-American, pro-family, pro-religion movies. So that proves that it can be done. And those movies were great movies. You know, the films of John Ford, the Westerns with John Wayne. These are the things that sold America to the world. Even more than the VOA in its heyday, they made people, especially including in the Soviet bloc, wanting to believing in America and wanting to come to America. So it has been done and done recently and done well. And that proves that we can do it, too. Part of what I can't understand, I guess, is you take somebody who is clearly a genius in Steven Spielberg. He makes Schindler's List. And yet people on the left are increasingly anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. And you would think with those kind of powerful emotional films, it would have sunk in that there are some core values here that are directly threatened by terrorist organizations like Hamas. But on the left now, it's almost like you can't even have this conversation without people becoming so emotional and so frenzied. I don't know whether it's a changing of the generational guard or what's going on, but people like Spielberg at least had some sense of balance that the world was real and that there were things that really were bad. I think that's right. But even Steven Spielberg, they get captured by the left. You know, they are sitting in Hollywood you know, among the groups that are just reinforcing these other views. And so he ends up making these films that are, you know, left of center. And I think that that tends to be what happens. It's the rare person like, say, Clint Eastwood that can sort of stand up to that. That's why really conservatives have always wanted to persuade Hollywood to be more open to their ideas. And I'm skeptical of that. I think it's its own culture. I depicted it in 1987 in Hollywood's Favorite Heavy, and it's only gotten more woke. We need to create our own team here. I say it's like, imagine if we only had the Democratic Party and you had to just appeal to it to be open to Republican ideas. You can't do it that way. You need a second party. We need other people. And that is not to downplay the genius of people like Steven Spielberg. In fact, I like to say, even in my own area of documentaries, there are plenty of very talented left of center documentary filmmakers, and I don't like to take anything away from them. A lot of them are extremely talented and brilliant, and some of them are personal friends. We just need to make similar films of our own, expressing our ideas and telling our stories. I always give the example of the Clarence Thomas film that many people on the left chose to tell the Ruth Bader Ginsburg story. There's a feature film and at least two documentaries and they made her into sort of a rap star. We were the only ones interested in telling Clarence Thomas's story. Now I guess they're interested in attacking him, as they've always been interested in that. So there are plenty of stories out there that are being left untold, that are great stories, that are not simply advocacy. And we need to tell them. We can tell them. 
whether we can ever get geniuses at the level of Spielberg, I hope so. And I think that we can. Frankly, I look at some of the audiences. Some of the most successful movies in the last few years have been either very Christian or very conservative and have had surprisingly big box office. That's right. The Sound of Freedom very recently is a notable example. I think people are tired of what they're getting from Hollywood. Hollywood cannot change. It's self-reinforcing. People get kudos and credits and the best tables and everything else they want from being within the sort of woke orthodoxy. And the few people who try to be different, I mean, even now in Hollywood, I think Gail Godot, the actress, is trying to do some pro-Israel things, and it's not easy. And this is just to be pro-Israel. So I think that people are tired of it. You're right. There's an audience there for an alternative. I like The Sound of Freedom. I don't think it's a brilliant movie, but it shows you that you can make a non-brilliant movie, but a pretty good movie that has non-Hollywood values outside the Hollywood system and make $200 million. So it can be done. There is an audience there. I sometimes compare it to the audience for news before they launched Fox News. You know, Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch had the insight that CNN and the NBC, ABC, CBS were all splitting the left of center audience, that if they did something that was right of center, they had half the country. And that's true in both feature films and documentaries. There's a vast audience and we simply need to tap it, but it takes time, it takes money, it takes resources, and we need to come up with them. Right. I think that the sort of anti-Americanism of the left really does play in our favor. I mean, even if it were true that there was a little less talent on the right, <laughs> this would maybe even make up for it, because I think Americans are sick of the kind of grievance narratives. And the pro-American stories, like Top Gun or something, mm. are extremely appealing to people. I mean, I really feel like despite all the bad news that we're saying, the good news for people that want to get into the film business is it's actually an exciting time. In documentary, because the left is such a stranglehold on the media, there's a lot of good stories that expose that that are ripe for the picking. And in film in general, I think now that there's a sort of democratization of how distribution works and people are getting tired of getting the same types of stories from Hollywood and they're looking elsewhere, it's a good time if you can create something great. We just need to make sure that we're finding the people that can do that and actually helping them because it's a very hard business no matter what side you're on, actually. That is true. So the Palladium Pictures Incubator for Documentary Filmmaking, which you entitled Shaping America's Future Storytellers, I assume you're looking for funding for people who want to be documentary filmmakers, for people who have ideas that might be the beginning of a really interesting film. What exactly are you looking for, and how can people apply to work with you? So we're looking for people that are producer directors already. So they have to have some experience making a film that they can use in their application that demonstrates that they have talent. I mean, that can mean that their early career with starting their own film studio, or it can mean that they're maybe they're doing something else in video, they want to pivot into documentary, they are working for somebody else, they want to make their film their way. But we're looking for people that are conservative in the sense, at least, that they're willing to question the you know mainstream orthodoxy coming out of the left in documentary film, and that they want to be documentary filmmakers and work with Palladium Pictures. So that's who should do it. The process is very simple on our website. And what they get out of it after they apply is then they're in this program for a year. And so we're executive producing this film with them. We're distributing it. We're funding it. And they can learn with us. But at the end of it, they'll have something that can serve as 
is a career springboard. It's very useful and it's tough to make a short doc. Sometimes it sits on your website. You don't really know what to do with it. It's very useful to have something that was good, that can be a proof of concept. It makes funding and distribution in the future easier. And for us, it's sort of the first kind of brick as we start to build the infrastructure out. And hopefully it'll also kind of start to turn the flywheel. We'll start to get the conservative donor class aware of the fact that films on the right can be good, that there can be talent, and that when you cultivate talent, it's a network effect, and it'll just sort of snowball more and more. And these, you know, one person that's great that comes out of the incubator that is a filmmaker for their lifetime is a humongous win. People who want to apply, go to palladiumpictures.com slash incubator. Is that correct? That's right. Palladiumpictures.com slash incubator or palladiumpictures.com. Click the big incubator button. There's FAQ page. Then you can just hit apply. It'll ask you for things like sample of past work and a chance to like pitch your documentary idea. And the deadline is December 1st. So it is coming up. (laughs) That first round of the application is not that time intensive. So you still have time to put together something great. And then you're going to have your opening session of the incubator fellows in Washington in February of 2024. That's right. Which will be exciting. And after you do that, we're going to have to ask you to come back and share with us your first year's progress and what's going on and what you're excited by and and also what you will have learned from this great new experiment. I think it's a terrific thing you're doing. We're bringing everybody together in Washington so they get to meet their cohort. And there is like a fellowship element of this. But this is a program you can do from anywhere in the country and stay wherever you are. Shoot it wherever you need to shoot. You know, we see it as a year-long program. We would love to come back. Absolutely. Of course we would, yes. We'd love to follow what you're learning and how you're doing it, what others could learn from it and how they could participate. Michael and Thomas, I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World. I encourage our listeners who are interested in documentary filmmaking, to apply for your new incubator program, which helps fund, mentor, and empower the next generation of documentary filmmakers. Anyone who's interested, I want to remind you, you can apply at palladiumpictures.com slash incubator, and we'll have that on our show page. The deadline to apply is December 1st. And thank you both very much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guests, Michael and Thomas Pack. You can get a link to apply to their new documentary filmmaking mentorship program on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.